This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. The Arizona Teachers Movement, Red for Ed, has scored a win with their walkout. They have realized their power, and they aren't going away. We cover the teachers and public sector strikes with veteran union negotiator, strike solidarity activist, and labor lawyer Joe Burns, who's written two books on the strike weapon. He says there are no illegal strikes, just unsuccessful ones, and labor law won't save us. In other words, the teachers are showing the way and reviving the most powerful weapon in the working class arsenal, the power of the strike. We'll get his take. We then look at U.S. foreign policy and the intellectual and anti-democratic origins of the U.S. national security state with Daniel Bessner, who teaches at the Henry Jackson School at the University of Washington. He has a new book out, Democracy in Exile, and we talk to him about how Trump represents a continuation rather than a break in the history of U.S. foreign policy, the rise of intellectuals in foreign policy institutions and think tanks with all the anti-democratic implications, as well as what a left foreign policy might look like. All this coming up on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm very, very pleased to have Joe Burns with us. I've wanted to have him on for a long time. He's a veteran union negotiator, a labor lawyer, and a former local union president, and he's also a strike activist, I think you could call it, and the author of two books, Strike Back, Using the Militant Tactics of Labor's Past to Reignite Public Sector Unionism Today. That came out in 2014. And Reviving the Strike, How Working People Can Regain Power and Transform America in 2011. And we're going to talk about this continuing, I don't know if you want to call it a wave, but if teachers strikes. And for those who have been following it, on the 29th of March, the threat of a looming strike in Oklahoma forced that state's government to concede in advance a $400 million funding bill that was granting a historic teacher pay raise of $6,000. Inspired by the example of West Virginia, Oklahoma educators nevertheless decided to go forward with their strike. But after two weeks, that proved insufficient to force a fairly intransigent Republican government to concede to their demands for increased school funding and schools reopen. And we're going to talk a little bit about the various tactics between the two. But nonetheless, the education struggles continue to spread across the country from Arizona to Colorado, North Carolina, and I think there's even rumors of Kentucky. So there's a need to understand what happened both in Oklahoma and West Virginia, why West Virginia was successful, and then also to talk about the strike weapon. So with all of that, Joe, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on, Susie. Well, I'm very excited to have you on because you have wonderful articles. In Jacobin, you wrote, there is no illegal strike, just an unsuccessful one. Earlier, you wrote how labor law won't save us now. And of course, both of those go right to the heart of what's wrong with the labor movement. So maybe we could just start with your overall take so far on this new militancy and whether or not you think it does mean that there is a strike wave. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very significant developments that are going on in these red states. And clearly, workers in various states are being inspired by what's going on in West Virginia. So I think it's fair to call it a strike wave. And if you look at labor history, including public employee labor history in the 1960s and 1970s, what you find is workers tend to 
sort of strike by example. One group strikes and then another group of workers in the same occupation typically will see those sort of tactics working. So then they say, why don't we do that? And that's exactly what we're seeing today. I'm sorry, I was going to just say, do you call this sort of an act of solidarity or sympathy or just learning the lessons from one and applying it to another situation? I think it's very much learning the lessons from one and applying it to the other. I think what's happening is in the states where the conditions for teachers have been the worst because of the lack of unions and the sort of hardcore attacks on education, that's where you're seeing people rise up. And what they're doing, it's very much the power of example. And it makes sense, right? It works for West Virginia teachers, so why don't Oklahoma teachers do it? Why don't Arizona? When Arizona started talking about it, it was real low level, but you can just see now they've got representatives in all these schools, you know, both a rank and file group and the official teachers union. So it's quite exciting, and it really is a grassroots effort, and it's because people saw what happened in West Virginia, and they experienced the same conditions. So I think people rightly, teachers rightfully say, well, why not us? And many people are calling this a turning point, and I agree with that. For the listeners, talk a little bit about the nature of these strikes in that it was quickly said that because teachers in red states are in right-to-work states, and that's the case, the Janus case that you've also written about and will touch on, that's before the Supreme Court, which may try to make the whole country a right-to-work country. And so because of that, The media picked up and said that the West Virginia strike is a wildcat strike, and most of us understand wildcat as a strike that doesn't have the sanction of the union, where it looks like in West Virginia the union may not have in the beginning been with the workers but were, and it was uneven in Oklahoma. Can you say something about that first? Yeah, I mean, I think these strikes are happening in states where the public employees don't have the legal right to strike. So in all of these states, and they're not striking through any sort of formal process where the state says, here's how you can bargain, and then if X and Y happens, then you can strike. But what we're finding is that it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. So you can have all the laws in the books against striking, but if enough workers go out and the picket lines are strong and they got strong public support and there's enough of them striking, which is why these statewide strikes are very important, then it doesn't matter what the law says. And that's very much in keeping with the labor history for public employees. Millions of workers struck illegally in the 60s and 70s, and they had the slogan back then, there's no illegal strike, just an unsuccessful one. Right, it's a great Um, slogan. And it's also, as you're saying, Joe Burns, it's a relationship of forces. If you've got the numbers and the support, the law doesn't really matter. It's really interesting that in West Virginia, the teachers said that they weren't going to accept anything if it didn't also apply to janitors and other public sector workers. I understand in Oklahoma that construction workers were also supporting the teachers. So it just kind of shows that there's public support and people are fed up with this universe in which trade unions have been demonized, the working class has taken a hit, and it always, they say, comes down in the public sector to no money, no funding. It's very heartening to see because solidarity is contagious. (laughs) And when a group of workers stands up and fights, 
they do often get support and other folks come out and are emboldened by that. So I think it's very heartening for the future of the labor movement. But do you think, because you've written previously in criticizing some of the teacher strikes that happened earlier in the 60s and 70s, where let's say that the unions were a moderating force and supportive of, say, the Democratic Party, but not necessarily advancing the workers' interests in the best way possible. How do you see it now? Do you know something about where the unions stood and whether or not this rank-and-file insurgency, essentially, is what makes a difference. I think what we're seeing here is really in line with labor history. And what we're seeing is that this is very much a grassroots effort, and the teachers got together in all of these states, really, and sort of self-organized at the grassroots level. And the official unions were forced to respond. And they may not have been out front, but the teachers were out leading. So then I think the state union sort of scrambled to catch up. And I think they've played different roles in the various states. And that probably depends on how well the teachers were organized on the ground. Certainly in West Virginia, there was a high level of teacher organization on the ground. So they were able to when a deal was announced by the statewide teachers union, they were able to hold strike votes and basically decide to stay out longer. In Oklahoma, I think they had less organization at the grassroots level, so they weren't in quite a strong a position to be able to keep going once there was a deal announced by the state union. We don't know what's going to happen, obviously, in Arizona, but it seems like there's a high level of sort of organization at the grassroots level. They have delegates from the Red for Ed in terms of what I've been reading in a lot of the schools. So I think they have some sort of grassroots organizations and they did take strike votes. So so a lot of this depends on what the level of organization on the ground is, how you're going to relate to the official sort of union apparatus. Right. And there's also like the difference between, let's say, West Virginia and Oklahoma. In West Virginia, all the teachers were out. The districts closed the schools. But in Oklahoma, it seems that there were only half of the teachers out and some of the rural areas weren't participating. They were more conservative. So the district didn't close there. And then you also had various differences between the smaller towns and the bigger cities like Tulsa and Oklahoma City, which meant that, as you just said, they probably didn't do as much organizing on the ground. And depending on this, uh, I think you said it's infectious, you know, this mood of going out and being able to win. Do you think that it's a setback in Oklahoma? Or do you think you just said, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but it seems like it's a much harder slog there? No, look, I think in all of the states we're seeing so far, by either striking or even threatening to strike, teachers are winning great gains. So I think in Oklahoma, even before the strike, they started funding more for education and they gave a $6,000 increase. So that's unthinkable that it it wouldn't have happened without the strike weapon. And I think it's long overdue. The conditions of teachers are what's leading for this. That's what's driving this whole strike wave is because it's been so bad in so many years of an attack on public education. But now the teachers in all of these states have a tool to fight back, which is our historic tool as a labor movement, which is the strike. I think it's amazing. 
Can we talk a little bit about that? Because in your books, you talk about this history, and you've mentioned it several times here, not just the 60s and 70s, where there were public sector strikes, but also going all the way back to the 30s and 40s. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened with the strike and why it's such a big deal now to revive it. Yeah, I mean, I've been arguing for the last decade or so that if we're going to talk about reviving the labor movement, we need to revive the strike weapon, because historically, that is where we get our power. And I'm a full-time bargainer. I've been at the bargaining table for 20 years, and I know that it's not our arguments at the bargaining table that get us what we need. It's membership mobilization, and ultimately, the threat of a strike. Now, I think over the years, what's happened is employers have systematically attacked our right to strike. They put so many limitations and rules in place that they've basically outlawed solidarity. They've restricted a lot of the traditional mechanisms that we've used to strike. And I think when we do make gains and when we will make gains in the future, it's when we break free from those sort of artificial legal constraints. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen with these teacher strikes. If the teachers had been in a situation where they had to strike one district at a time, they never would have succeeded. They're succeeding because of solidarity, because they're going out, the entire state's going out at a time. They can't replace all those teachers. They got public support. It becomes a bigger issue. There's a tons of reasons why striking entire industries and on a bigger scale is a lot better than doing isolated tiny strikes. And that's what labor law is set up nowadays to force us to do. What's interesting about that, too, though, is because you said it's effective. The strike is the most effective weapon, and it hasn't been used as much. And what's also obviously necessary today is that workers who obviously start in the workplace withdraw their labor and create some sort of a crisis so long as it is statewide in this case and even threatening to go much farther than that. But on the other hand, they reach out in rank-and-file organizing and reach out to other workers. And in the case of West Virginia, it's janitors, but we also look at cooks and others in the public sector, even construction workers. How much do you see that as, like, critical to the success of strikes? Or do you still think it's just organizing within the schools or in the sector? No, I think it's all important. I think by having a strike, you're able to sort of galvanize all of the latent support that's out there. And that's what we saw in these states, right, where there's incredible support out there for public education and for the plight of teachers. And I think poll after poll in these red states show that the teachers were winning the battle of public opinion and that they were gaining support. And I think the the sort of solidarity that you see when people engage in strikes like this is amazing. You mentioned it before, it's sort of the iron workers in Oklahoma and people mm-hmm. working on the Capitol. It's amazing that the teachers in West Virginia, even though they were the ones who were out there on the forefront, they also fought for raises for all public workers. And I think that's what people's natural inclinations are is solidarity. And that's why employers hate solidarity. That's why they attack it. That's why they put all these rules in place is because they know that for working people, solidarity is the most powerful force on earth. And that's what this is teaching us, that we need to reclaim solidarity. Well, that's absolutely the case. And Joe Burns, what a difference a couple of months make, because, you know, just say even five months ago, four months ago, we were talking about the perhaps devastating blow to unions that, you know, is being considered 
before the Supreme Court right now, the Janus case, and you've written on it. Some people were trying to put a positive spin on, and I should explain, the Janus case will virtually turn the whole country into right-to-work states that unions will not be able to collect dues from all of the workers in a workplace. Maybe you could explain your take on that, and does this strike wave make Janus slightly less of a devastating blow than we would have thought? Yeah, I think for a lot of folks, what the Janus case is about is whether or not the unions can require folks to pay their fair share of the cost of bargaining. So on one hand, it sounds like it's a pretty technical dispute, Mm -hmm. and it's about dues and collection of dues, but it's really not. It's really about solidarity. What employers hate and what they believe they're going to get in this Janus decision from the Supreme Court, it's really about destroying internal solidarity and saying that a union's just a collection of individuals, that they don't represent everybody at the work site. It's to make it a lot harder for unions to bargain and to strike because they're basically saying democracy doesn't rule and you really don't represent everybody. And that's what the Janus case is really about. And what the West Virginia and the Oklahoma and what Arizona is about is the exact opposite. It's about solidarity. It's about teachers speaking for everybody. So I think they're polar opposite views of the role of the labor movement. And, you know, obviously our future lies in the sort of grassroots militant sort of impulse that we're seeing from teachers in the red states. Well, let me just ask you, because you're a labor lawyer and a union negotiator, you're actually in the middle of a negotiation right now, and I'm glad we were able to get you away from it. You know, there's a lot of language about collective bargaining and whether or not they have the right to collectively bargain, and in some red states they do not, right-to-work states. And what does Janice have to do with collective bargaining? Is it just an attempt, as you were intimating, Joe Burns, that it would undercut the possibility of it by undercutting the funding? of the unions. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, strictly speaking, the case is about whether or not the unions can require folks who choose not to join the union to pay for the costs of bargaining since they benefit from it as well. So that's what it is on a real sort of narrow basis. But I think unions have always saw it as a lot bigger, and I think employers do too. It's really about what are the roles of unions in society? Do we have the right to represent all of the workers in a workplace? And that's why the labor movement fought against this when it was a part of the Taft-Hartley Act in the late 40s. They called it the Slave Labor Act because they knew that it would lead to the destruction of the labor movement. And in reality, this Janus decision, it's not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a sort of context of all these restrictions on the ability to bargain. So in Wisconsin, not only did they impose this sort of right to work for less, provisions, but they also (laughs) restricted what the unions could bargain about. They tried to make it harder for public employee unions to exist. So I think it's better thought of as one part and parcel of an attack on unions in the public sector, which was one of the remaining strongholds of the labor movement. So that's why they're going after us in the public sector is because 
we've been able to hold on to a higher level of unionization there. But are you surprised then, Joe Burns, that we're seeing the first fight back in states where they've already lost that, the right, not necessarily of collective bargaining, certainly the right to strike, but in these states where they do have the right to work, rather than say, like in California and other places where it's more of a funding issue and there's a lot of discontent brewing, but it's a very different set of issues. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, I'm surprised because some of these struggles, they come out of the blue, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. who would have thought that it would be the West Virginia and Oklahoma and Arizona where we're going to see a teacher strike wave? So on that hand, it's somewhat surprising. But on the other hand, you know, I guess it makes sense because these are the areas where conditions for teachers have become the most unbearable. And if you read the stories about what's happening and using 20-year-old textbooks and mm. and the cuts in the classrooms and people working two or three jobs, then I guess it goes back to the basics of trade unionism. When workers are up against the wall and, and they feel that they need to do something, then often that's where the struggle will break out. So I think that is in line, known somewhat with the labor history. And in your article in Jacobin, There's No Illegal Strike, Just an Unsuccessful One, you really sort of put all of the, I guess, emphasis on that if this strike wave continues, that it really means we've returned to the militant days. So it's kind of like a back to the future hope for turning back the tide. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I mean, I think it points the way forward for the labor movement. We can have all the discussion and all the theories, you know, floating out there about how to revive the labor movement. But at the end of the day, it's really about grassroots, member-led, militancy, striking, strategic actions. That's what's going to revive us as a movement. So it gives me a lot of hope. I think it's one of the most exciting things I've seen in the labor movement for the last couple decades. Well, it's a great place to end, and I want to thank you so much, Joe Burns, for joining us with your, let's call it experience and analysis of this strike wave. Joe Burns is a veteran union negotiator. He's a labor lawyer. He's a former local union president. He's active in strike solidarity. And his two books are probably really, really like part of the weaponry we need for today. Strike Back is one using the militant tactics of labor's past to reignite the public sector unionism today and reviving the strike, how working people can regain power and transform America. Thanks so much for joining us today, Joe Burns. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Daniel Bessner with us. He's an assistant professor in American foreign policy at the University of Washington's Henry Jackson School of International Studies. He works on the intellectual and anti-democratic origins of the U.S. national security state, and that's stating it very broadly. But he has a brand new book. It just came out, published by Cornell University Press, and it's called Democracy in Exile, Hans Speer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. We're going to talk to Daniel about how Trump, President Trump, I should say, represents a continuation rather than a break in the history of U.S. foreign policy and the rise of intellectuals in foreign policy institutions and think tanks with all of the anti-democratic implications that that has meant. And then we'll probably end up with what a left foreign policy might look like. So with all of that, welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Well, one of the reasons that I wanted to put you on, I looked at some of your articles in N Plus One, Dissent, Jacobin, and elsewhere, in which you actually do argue that Trump's a continuation rather than a break in the history of foreign policy. And then I wanted to talk to you about the sort of continuity, because as we all know, the Trump administration was an elected within America first anti-globalist free trade policies and really semi-isolationist stance in foreign policy. And now, surprise, surprise, he's acting in continuity with the foreign (laughs) policy exercise for decades with some subtle differences. But, for example, we know right now an olive branch has been extended to North Korea after a Twitter bluster before that threatening complete destruction. And then with the notorious uh, flamethrowing neocon John Bolton now becoming the third national security advisor to President Trump, we're seeing a barrage of missile strikes against Syria in coalition with French and British forces. So it really does seem like the status quo ante proceeds. And in other words, the nuances between the Democrats and Republicans in power might exist, but not the substance of American foreign policy. And that seems like a really good place to start. So can we start there? Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And a few uh, younger scholars, people who grew up in the uh, age of the Iraq War, have really been at the forefront of arguing that Trump's foreign policy represents a continuation of uh, U.S. foreign policy since the 90s and and more recent times, but really, I'd argue, since 1945. And and what I mean by that is Trump, like every American president since World War II and the early Cold War, is essentially taking American world leadership for granted and the fact that the United States has the right, duty, and interest in intervening abroad when, where, and how it sees fit. And what I think this points to especially is that the importance of the institutions and culture of American foreign policy making, so that even someone like Trump, who very famously during his campaign was anti-Iraq, or at least critiqued the Iraq war for being dumb and, and claimed that he was going to rely on new types of people to make foreign policy, even someone who was elected on that platform is a person who nevertheless is going to do U.S. foreign policy, essentially by the books. And of course, this is without getting into Trump's own personal horribleness and the ways that he is a very non-astute critic and a uh, person of, uh, who understands American foreign policy. Not much of a student of it either. Can I just ask one question as you yeah, continue in that vein? Were you surprised when Trump was elected, did you think, given the bluster and the Bannon connection, that there might be a difference? Or were you pretty sure that he'd be brought back into the fold? No, I was pretty sure he'd be brought back into the fold. I mean, first of all, no one knows really how sincere those critiques were. It was probably more likely he recognized that it got a reaction from the crowd. And he made them. So first of all, Trump himself is never someone who is going to be an anti-imperialist, I think. But I think what's really more important here is that the the institutions of U.S. foreign policy are institutions that were designed in the 1940s to govern and manage the world. Institutions like the National Security Council, the CIA, Mm -hmm. all the think tanks that exist outside traditional democratic structures of the U.S. state. These institutions were particularly made to guarantee and and manage global hegemony. So there was only so much that a president, especially one who's not a particular political genius like Trump, would be able to do given these circumstances. So from the beginning, I was pretty sure after he got elected that he'd follow the same tune as everyone who came before him. And do you follow the thesis, say, that Basevich puts forward that this is the Washington consensus and that it really determines policy rather than the president's? 
I think that's true. And I think Basevich is pretty much right on all these points. What I would do, though, is probably extend his critique to examine uh, more cultural elements as to why the foreign policy establishment is the way that it is. And to put it very briefly, I think that the, the institutions of the post-1945 American states were all instantiated with this fear that democracy was a weak political form and that you couldn't trust ordinary people basically to support policies that would be, enable the United States to overcome the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And so what was created in the late 40s were all these institutions that were specifically designed to ensure that ordinary Americans would have no influence on American foreign policy. And you probably see this most distinctly in the National Security Council, which is, of course, how people like Henry Kissinger, Michael Flynn, and more recently, John Bolton, are able to get into power without receiving any sort of congressional approval. Well, I was just going to say, Please. when it came along, when the National Security Council came along and the National Security Advisor, it was seen as kind of a threat and a point of conflict between the Secretary of State and yeah, the National Security Council. We certainly saw it in the Carter administration. Absolutely. Yeah, go on. Maybe you could let our listeners know, too, how that came about. And was it seen as a counterweight, sort of the president's own way of making foreign policy to maybe, as you say, inject nuance or differences into the sort of status quo? Yeah, well, the way that it came about is that the United States emerges, of course, from World War II, and they want to manage all of these international affairs that the nation really didn't have beforehand. And what it wound up doing in order to do so was to centralize power really in the executive. So we have the emergence of this imperial presidency, which it's famously called, which started, of course, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but only really takes off, ironically, during the New Deal. People probably don't recognize this, but... Uh, Roosevelt was actually the one who signed over 3,000 executive orders, by far the most executive orders signed by an American president. So basically, in order to create the modern state that many people like, this expansionist welfare state, which is a good thing, it unfortunately went along with the creation of an expansionist foreign policy bureaucracy that was likewise dedicated to managing all of these international affairs. And what was lost here in these institutions was that they were defined by a culture that I really think was to a large degree anti-democratic or at least skeptical of ordinary people's ability to have a positive effect on U.S. foreign policy. And this was because it was feared by many elites that the interwar experience demonstrated that Americans wouldn't necessarily have committed themselves to the fight against the Nazis if it weren't for Pearl Harbor and another of contingent circumstances, so that when the United States faced a nuclear-armed Soviet Union in the late 40s and beyond, they needed to create these pseudo-state institutions that, while basically were working with or for the government, didn't have traditional forms of democratic accountability, either to the public or more specifically to Congress. This is really fascinating, Daniel Bessner, and I should just let the listeners know that his brand new book published by Cornell University Press is called Democracy in Exile, Hans Speer and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual, and you can run out and get it today. But let's go back to what you're saying, because one, that the, let's call it the foreign policy establishment is in fact an anti-democratic establishment, but as you're putting forward now, it came out of the experience of the Second World War and a more liberal idea that the American people wouldn't understand the, what, more noble aims of spreading democracy, first against fascism and now against so-called communism. Are you saying that it had that kind of origins? And coming out of that, I wanted to ask the question, at what point was a decision made, if that's the way that you could put it, that there would be a reliance on foreign policy intellectuals? Because we see that, for example, in Vietnam, it was the absence of foreign policy intellectuals that led us deeper, I think, into the conflict. 
Yeah, well, it's a really interesting thing. I think what's critical to notice here is that the 1930s, in my opinion, are, are really the most important uh, period for understanding modern U.S. foreign policy. And that's because it was during this decade that a bunch of elites in both Europe, people who were exiled from Europe, but also in the United States, began to become convinced that democracy was a weak political form. So I think on the one hand, like you said, they wanted to spread democracy after 45 through, of course, violent means and undemocratic <laughs> means. But they were also legitimately worried that democracy was actually weak and could easily fall prey either to to what they would have called the stupid public opinion. Literally, they would have called ordinary people stupid. That's what they thought. Or a more wily totalitarian regime that didn't need to rely on the mechanisms of democracy in order to make foreign policy. In other words, a state like the Soviet Union. So what happened was that there was a sense of crisis in the 1930s. And this sense of crisis is a logic that I think was institutionalized in groups like the NSC and CIA. So that American foreign policy since 1945 is a foreign policy that leaps from one crisis to the another and uses a rhetoric that doesn't really apply. And you saw this right after 2001 uh, with the creation of the so-called axis of evil, where North Korea, Iran, and other anti-American nations were equated to Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, which is just patently absurd, given the overwhelming American power during that period and the relative weakness of all of these other states. It also reflected perhaps a feigned ignorance of what fascism is, but it, right. it served their purposes very well when almost anybody we didn't like was called a Hitler. Right, exactly. And you have this deep cultural, basically, analogy, this Nazi analogy, which I think is probably the most relevant and salient political analogy in American political culture, which is ironic, of course, because Nazi Germany happened in Germany, right? So for 70 years, though, you've been having Americans worried about the Weimar experience repeating itself. That is the experience of the Weimar Republic, the German Democratic Republic that eventually collapsed and gave way to Hitler. But for since 1945, and even a bit earlier, you have a bunch of American elites worrying about Weimar, though, of course, Weimar never happened here. So what you have is this experience or this image of Nazism, which is not actually related to what one might call actually existing Nazism, but is rather relevant to an image that became prominent in the United States after the war. And of course, this isn't to take away from the fact that there are real Nazis in our culture, as demonstrated in Charlottesville, and they should, of course, be combated at every step. But just frankly, ISIS is not equivalent to Nazi Germany in terms of power position, in terms of what it can do in the world. The same is true for Iran. Yeah, nor, nor would you say, in fact, that the U.S. is entering or in any sort of crisis, economic, political, and social, as Germany faced in the interwar years, where, in fact, the resort to fascism was actually to save, <laughs> save Germany from revolution. A very different set of circumstances, but I'm really appreciating your analysis that this was at least the ideological spur or justification for everything that followed. So maybe you could just take it a little bit further before we get into Iran and, let's say, North Korea and the axis of evil, but to look at which of these think tanks and foreign policy institutions were created and what their sort of ideological bent, if you could say there was one, was. 
Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. So basically, very quickly, what happened was that in the 30s, a generation of intellectuals, both German and American-born, became convinced that the Weimar experience demonstrated that you couldn't rely, again, on ordinary people to make wise political decisions. So whereas before the 30s, intellectuals viewed their democratic duty as, for example, like John Dewey argued, educating the public, in the 1930s, and particularly in the 40s and beyond, they began to view their moral duty not as educating people, but as rather advising decision-makers. And the the opportunity presented by World War II allowed these intellectuals to enter the state because the American state, which was relatively small before World War II, needed experts, people who just, for example, knew the German language and were able to analyze German propaganda materials. They needed them in the state. So this brought thousands of intellectuals into the state and convinced them that they could make a positive contribution to U.S. foreign policy on one hand. Now, on the other hand, the military and government itself recognized, or at least they believed that these intellectuals made good contributions to foreign policy. So after the war, one of the military branches, uh, the Air Force, gave $10 million to the Douglas Aircraft Company, a private corporation, in order to found a group called the RAND Corporation. Right. That was your big area of uh, analysis. And right here in Santa Monica. So let's keep going. Right. Beautiful Santa Monica, a great place to do research. But what's interesting is that Project RAND gets founded. It becomes the RAND Corporation in 1948. And all of these intellectuals decide to work for them. And what I show in my book is that they decided to work for them, one, because they found academic life too boring after the war. You know, the war was exciting. You're not just writing history or sociology, but you're actually affecting history and society. But they also really believed that they had a democratic duty to defend democracy in a moment of crisis. Now, what's interesting, and I think critical here, is that in the 30s, when intellectuals said they needed to stop educating the public and they needed to join the state, they argued that when the Nazis were defeated, they would reassert their democratic function, which is basically providing political education to the quote-unquote masses in order to make them make good political decisions. And this was the argument they made in the 30s. But in the 40s, what happened is that the rise of a nuclear-armed Soviet Union that really couldn't be defeated, right? You could defeat the Nazis. There weren't nuclear weapons. You could have a a drawn-out war. But when the Soviets had nukes, no side, especially the American side, was not willing to fight a nuclear war. So what you have is that the moment of crisis, which is identified in the 1930s, becomes an era of crisis in the late 1940s, in which emergency measures that were previously deemed acceptable only in particularly extreme moments, like when you're facing the Nazis, become permanently justified in the 1940s and beyond. So just to take some examples right in the early Cold War, you're able to overthrow a democratically elected government in Iran and Guatemala you recognize that this isn't, quote-unquote, the noble or democratic thing to do, but you justify it because it's a world crisis. It's an international crisis. And I think it is this logic of crisis that becomes not the only, but one of the most important ideological formulations of the American foreign policy establishment that is able to be picked up at different moments in post-war history. So even though it goes away, for example, during the era of detente in the 70s, it's able to be quickly brought up again by Reagan in the so-called Second Cold War in the early 80s, and more famously in our own time after 9-11 with the axis of evil, and even more recently how people often describe Iran and ISIS. Right. Okay. So I'm speaking with Daniel Bessner, and he teaches foreign policy at the Henry Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. And he has a new book out that's called Democracy in Exile, Hans Spear and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. And it's really the story of how the, let's call it, anti-democratic 
sphere of U.S. government, the foreign policy establishment came to be, and what it means today. Because on the one hand, you had the sort of uh, liberals who were appalled by fascism in the early part of the Cold War, Kennedy-esque liberals, but then who got us mired in Southeast Asia and then out of that and many other sorts of twists and turns, we come to the neocons in the Bush administration Mm -hmm. becoming literally hegemonic, I would say, in foreign policy. Maybe you would disagree with that, and we're still seeing the after effect of that. And in your book, you really talk about it as well as your articles in M Plus One and Jacobin and elsewhere, that people like Kissinger and you said before, and John Bolton can come to the heights of power without any congressional confirmation. But then even after they are seen to be a complete disaster, uh, you know, they profit from it and continue to profit from it. But just before you go there, there's one thing. When we look at the Vietnam War, and let's take it from there right to Iraq, I guess, in 9-11, you saw the sort of distrust of academia because they thought most of the people who understood China and Vietnam and elsewhere were too left-wing and couldn't be relied upon. So they kind of were winging it, understand the nature of nationalism. And as you said before, you know, that there were the horrors of fascism, but there was also this east-west prism and every conflict was going to fit into it. And most of, I would say, it was the crusade that they called the anti-communist crusade. It was almost had a religious fervor, but it also, Mm -hmm. instead of saying it that, they said, we fight for democracy and freedom. I mean, it's totally Orwellian, but anyway, go from there. No, it's absolutely. And what's interesting to note is I think you're right. Who are the intellectuals that the government listened to, especially during Vietnam? Mm -hmm. So the biggest and most important intellectuals, of course, in the government were Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, and Walt Rostow, a modernization theorist and economic historian who didn't know particularly much about any world region. So what you see here is, is in that this moment, what's valued by the government is quantified knowledge, where people use models and theories in order to understand life and not particular area knowledge. So on the one hand, it's because you're right. I think the people who did study, for example, the People's Republic of China, or the Soviet Union, it was worried that they were maybe too left wing or other communist governments. But also it's the type of knowledge that the government valued wasn't that sort of area studies, linguistic knowledge, even though they did give some money to that and the creation of area studies programs in Title VI, but more as this generalizable, universalizable type of formal quantification methods that were very much valued in the American government after World War II, because it would, these types of social sciences were considered to be quote-unquote sciences that provided a more accurate representation of the world. And you could even see that today, as I'm sure you're well aware, in the modern academy, for example, we're in the discipline of political science, you could major in methods in graduate (laughs) school as opposed to not have anything political. So it's also the certain types of knowledge that's valued of course, by people. And so that's on one hand. And then on the other hand, you have basically what I would call the grandchildren of the guys I study in my first book. I studied what I call the first generation of defense intellectuals, the people who created the system in the 40s and the 50s. Their children and grandchildren, people like Paul Wolfowitz, who studied with this guy named... Yeah, exactly. Paul Wolfowitz, who studied with this guy named Albert Wallsetter, Uh who's uh, one of the most important people at the Rand Corporation, people like Doug Feist, uh, Zalmay Halilzad also studied with Wallsetter and elsewhere. So you have these sorts of people who, even though they never experienced 
the image of fascism firsthand. They're given this image that democracy is always on the verge of collapse, and they really imbibe this image, perhaps understandably, because a lot of them are Jewish and they're the sons and daughters of people who either escaped the Holocaust or European pogroms. So they're very much worried about existential threats to the Jewish people, um, given the Holocaust and all that. But they imbibe this perspective that democracy is always on the verge of collapse and that the United States needs to spread its power abroad and could only be, quote unquote, safe in a world in which every government, every state looks like the United States. And this becomes this founding neocon ideology, which is really created out of this myth about these people in the 70s. For most of them, never actually experienced the confrontation with fascism firsthand. And what they do is they very easily analogize the Soviet Union with Nazi Germany by using this word totalitarian, which I don't particularly like, because they're actually either. very different political regimes, very, very different regimes mm-hmm. with very different goals, very different government structures and totally different strategies. But what they do is that they use this term to bring them all under the same umbrella as essentially evil. And this becomes a tactic and strategy that's used by U.S. foreign policymakers more and more as the 80s and 90s wear on, like I mentioned earlier with Iran and North Korea today and ISIS more recently until they were defeated. But then we get this really adventuristic foreign policy that you saw with Pearl and Wolfowitz and Cheney and Rumsfeld in Iraq that was a complete disaster. And yet it's not really discredited in that we have have now today, I think you mentioned David Frum is now a Republican who is now a member in good standing with the resistance because of that disaster, but more because he's anti-Trump. And then on the other hand, now Trump brings in Bolton, who in some ways is the kind of, what, mischievous child of the neocons? (laughs) And uh, uh, maybe that's putting it very nicely. So where are we now today? Let's end on that. And then also what you think an alternative was. I'm hoping we can get to that as well. Sure. Just to put it briefly, what happened when these systems were created in the 40s and the 50s is that no one imagined that experts or the government wouldn't be able to hold themselves accountable. So there are absolutely no accountability mechanisms contained in these foreign policy establishment institutions. But problematically, as we saw after Vietnam and more recently after Iraq, is that without accountability, you have the same people being recycled in and out of these institutions. And I think the best example of this, of course, is Wolfowitz, who helps contribute to this disastrous Iraq war. He leaves the government, becomes president of the World Bank, resigns from the World Bank in disgrace, goes to the American Enterprise Institute, and then to Jeb Bush's foreign policy team, which, of course, we all have to remember at the beginning of the campaign, a lot of people thought Jeb Bush was going to be the Republican nominee. So Wolfowitz, even though he had contributed disastrously to the Iraq war, was going to be again in power. And now Bolton, who did help (laughs) uh, gin up support for the Iraq war, is literally back in power. And I think this is just reflective of, one, the lack of accountability in these two ships specifically, but even more broadly, a general lack of accountability in American political culture since 1945, which is the area I focus upon, since 1945, that's reflected not only in foreign policy, but in a number of issue areas. So, for example, with Hillary Clinton, who called African-American children super predators and was somehow able to be the Democratic nominee. And there's just a lack of accountability for a lot of political elites across the political spectrum, which I think is an important aspect of American political culture in the age of America's rise to globalism that people, I think, regardless of where they stand on the political spectrum, should find problems with because governance can't function effectively if there's absolutely no accountability for making absolutely horrible 
decisions. Well, and really, now what type of accountability? Yeah, can I just say too, because I think we only have yeah, about two minutes at most left, and, sure. and you mentioned Hillary Clinton, and some people think of her as an alternative. She's certainly a neocon. She's been calling for bombing Syria. Robert Kagan is throwing her fundraisers. And so that brings up, I think, finally, what would an alternative be? How do you democratize foreign policy? Is that a possibility? And what do you see as a kind of socialist foreign policy? Right. And I think that's probably the most important or one of the most important questions facing the social left today. And I and I don't think anyone else yet has any good answers, because the reality is, like, let's say there was a socialist elected in 2020 or 2024. That person is going to have to deal with the mechanisms of the American empire that have been occupying for the last 70 years. So what I think we could do right now is start to build an alternative foreign policy by asking the right questions that have both short term, medium term and long term perspectives. So in the short term, socialists is elected. What do you do with the fact that the United States has over 800 bases? What do you do with the fact that there are 10 to 12, I forget the exact number of aircraft carriers who have the possibility of obliterating entire nations with nuclear weapons? What do you do with all these weapons of mass destruction that the United States has in the short term? In the medium term, How do you actually inculcate a culture that is skeptical of imperialism in the American people? How do you actually get a new foreign policy establishment that is able to manipulate the actual levers of American power in such a way as to achieve broad left-wing goals? And in the long term, how do you create the type of socialist world in which we all want to live and in which there is less a periphery and a center and more equality both within nations and also between nations? So what I think socialists have to do right now is really start asking these questions and developing what are often going to be hard answers that a socialist left, which has never governed in modern American history, has never had to deal with in the past. So I think in this moment, it's a moment of hope, but it's also a moment where we need to ask ourselves difficult questions and start providing answers to them. Great way to end. And thank you so much for all of that. A lot of food for thought. You can get more of it by reading Daniel Bessner. He publishes in M plus one and Jacobin and elsewhere. And you can also go out and get his brand new book called Democracy in Exile, Hans Spear and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. And Daniel Bessner is the Anne H. H. and Kenneth Pyle Assistant Professor in American Foreign Policy at the Henry Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington, and we could even talk about that at some point. But I want to thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thanks very much, Susie. Thanks, and good luck with the book. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.